Well, hi, everyone. I'm Carly Vigna, and this is episode 322 of App Percussion. With me today are my wonderful co-hosts, Caleb Pickering. Hey, Caleb. Hey, how's it going? Good, good, good. Caleb, how does it feel to be the only person in the room who never studied with Matt Strauss? I'll see y'all later, maybe on episode <laughs> 323 or something. Hey, how, how's it feel for y'all three to be the only person that didn't uh, well, I was going to say study with Casey, but sometimes that's more of a curse than a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not editing that out. Yeah, leave that in. <laughs> oh, and Ben Charles is also here. Ben, how's it going? Hey, Carly, doing well. How are you? Good, 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 good. Um, so if you're listening on release date, that means that today is March 31st. So Ben, what happened in music history on March 31st? Well, Carly, a few things happened. Uh, so in rock and roll history in 1958, Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good was released. That's, of course, the, the song that appears in Back to the Future. And in 1967, the Jimi Hendrix Experience began its first British tour. Uh, the show at the Astoria in London featured the first time that Hendrix ever set his guitar on fire, which was a thing that happened. Um, so there's a little picture of that if you've never seen Jimi Hendrix with his guitar on fire. Um, that instrument actually in 2008, the burned instrument, sold for more than $450,000 at auction. And then we have a couple of uh, birthdays in music history. In 1732, Joseph Haydn was born and he turns 290 today. And uh, the big one that I wanted to talk about is in 1685, Bach was born. Um, and so that means today is his 337th birthday. And I thought we could play a little game and we haven't introduced our guest yet, but our guest today is Brady Spitz. And Brady, you're welcome to play in the game as well. So I have, let's see here, seven facts. They are all true facts about composers, but only some of them are about Bach. So we're going to play a game I'm calling Bach or Nacht. <laughs> so uh, the, first, uh, the first fact, and for all these, I will say Bach in the question, but I'll tell you if it's false, I'll tell you who it actually was. Um, so the first one is that Bach was an eighth generation musician. Bach or Nacht? I'm going for, I'm going for Bach. I think Bach. That is indeed Bach. Very good. Uh, his father, Johann Ambrosius Bach, was a seventh-generation musician and carried on the tradition by teaching Bach how to play violin. The second Bach or Nacht fact is that Bach married his cousin. I'm going for Bach. Do you know what? I think I'm going to go for Bach. Anyone think, else want to? I think Nacht. What do you think, Brady? Probably oh. Nacht. It is Bach. Uh, he married his cousin, Maria Barbara Bach, and they had seven children. Um, two of his sons from that relationship, Wilhelm Friedemann and Carl Philipp Emanuel, became composers and musicians like their fathers. The third one, Bach or Nacht, uh, Bach once cut off the pigtails of a fellow choir member as a practical joke. I hope I'm going it's Bach. Knocked. I'm going Nacht. <laughs> I think knocked. That's so random. Like how, like, how is that even documented? All the things that happened in his life. I don't think so. Like I said, these are all about an actual composer. That was not, not Bach. That was not. Uh, that was his birthday buddy, Joseph Haydn, actually did that. So, true fact. Uh, the next, Bach or knocked. Bach was given a diamond ring by the crown prince of Sweden. I'm going knocked on that one. No. Knocked. 
That is Bach, actually. He was given a diamond ring in 1714 from the crown prince Fre uh, Frederick of Sweden, who was amazed at his playing. Um, next, Bach or knocked. Uh, I said Bach. Uh, he was given the nickname Little Mushroom due to his height. Was he short? Was he? Was he a little mushroom? <laughs> I've only ever seen seen busts of him, so I imagine just a floating head. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Bach. I think Bach. Yeah, I think so as well. That was not. That was no. Schubert was given the, the nickname Little Mushroom. I'm glad uh, I don't have to think about Little Mushroom every time I play Bach. I rarely play Schubert. <laughs> we got two more here. Uh, the next one, Bach kept a frog figurine in his pocket at all times and would rub it before concerts for good luck. No, no. way. No way. Knocked. That sounds like a, that sounds like a Schumann else. thing. That's a that is a knock. That is Edward Grieg did that apparently. That sounds right. And the last Bach or knocked, Bach was arrested and put in jail for requesting release from a job on short notice. Bach, I'm gonna go Bach. It seems early enough in time that would that the would the church have arrested him? I'm gonna say knocked. He had like three jobs in his whole life, right? That is Bach. <laughs> he angered uh, Duke Wilhelm for requesting release from his position on short notice and desiring to go work for Prince Leopold of, uh, pardon my German, Koten. Koten. Uh, he was arrested and put in jail for several weeks in 1716. I should have uh, I should have put a, um, a a ringer in there about like Bach set his organ on fire, but I wasn't that smart. <laughs> But yeah, so that's uh, that's today's game of Bach or Knocked. Thanks everyone for playing. That that one hundred percent has to stay every week here on out. That, <laughs> that has to be a regular segment because that was fantastic. Yeah. Well, I had to be I had to be careful because all the Bach facts at first were really normal, and all the not ones were really bizarre. <laughs> so I had to try and find weird effects about Bach. So. There you I'm go. really glad that that's not how my doctoral comps went because I was <laughs> really bad, <laughs> really bad yeah. at it. Shick or nicked, yeah. <laughs> nicked, yeah. Well, well, it, well. Thanks, Ben. Now we have a new segment. I'm gonna have to live up to that next time. <laughs> what can I make into a game? <laughs> well, you've already heard his voice, um, but I'm very happy to introduce today's guest. Brady Spitz serves as the assistant professor and director of percussion at University of Tennessee Martin. Uh, he has a wealth of experience both teaching and playing with classical, contemporary, marching percussion, and also world percussion. He's played with some major U.S. orchestras, including the Houston Symphony and the Hawaii Symphony. He's collaborated with artists like Claire Chase and Mario Davidovsky, um, and he has an organ and percussion duo called Sonic Boom. Brady has also done extensive work, including um, his 200-something page doctoral dissertation in the area of Lou Harrison's American Gamelan, and he also has a new book coming out soon, both of which things are, are they're both things that we'll be talking about today. So welcome to the show, Brady. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be a blast. So um, I haven't, actually, we met many, many years ago. I don't know if you remember, um, mm -hmm. but certainly we haven't talked since since you started your new job congratulations how's your how's your school year been uh thanks so much yeah it's been it's been great uh obviously it's sort of a whirlwind i think anytime you get into a new job let alone sort of a, a big kid teaching job so uh, we're on about to come back off spring break now 
it's kind of late in the year for spring break, but I've enjoyed the I've enjoyed the break, but now I'm ready to get to the final push. We got percussion ensemble in a couple of weeks and some uh, great students here. So I'm really excited. Yeah, awesome. This is the point in the semester, I feel like, where we can both see the end mm -hmm. and also think about here's all the things that happen between now and then. And I don't know how it's all going to happen, but it will. It's close enough where you start salivating for the creative work you get to do over the summer. Yeah. Yeah, that's and yeah, and practice time and you know. Yeah. <laughs> Between this job and a toddler, practicing is kind of a myth the last eight months or so for me. So well, it's it's a lot. I mean, our our listeners might know Caleb and I are also in our first year at a new school. And um it's I, I keep hoping like things calm down. Like once you get you know the ropes and you know, you kind of everything's established. I ideally it does get easier, but I don't know if no, that's absolutely. true. <laughs> I, you know, maybe, but I mean, it's a lot of work, but obviously we wouldn't be doing this if it weren't also a lot of fun. So I yeah. think love, love doing this work, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're, we're really happy for you. I'm glad you're having a good time there. So I do remember when we met in Miami though. I yeah. do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was quite a while ago. That must've been 2014. Something like that. I, I was there then for sure. <laughs> we were talking about that earlier. It was 2014 because I remember the apartment I was in because you visited. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned, um, Brady's done quite a bit of work on American Gamelan, and that's going to be um, our main focus of the episode today. Brady, would you give us a bit of background about what exactly American Gamelan is? What, is that, what does that term refer to? That's actually a great question, uh, because there is a bit of a conundrum around the terminology. Um, a lot of college programs tend to have, uh, or they have gamelan programs of some variety or another. So Javanese or Balinese gamelan, uh, which are the two major varieties of gamelan that you'll see. Um, American gamelan essentially was a way for American composers to recreate some of the sound palettes that they would hear in Javanese and Balinese music, um, but they didn't want to import, you know, a $40,000 set of instruments uh, from Indonesia. So um, they started using different elements of materials that were available in the United States. So we get uh, on the West Coast, which is sort of one of the big focuses, we get uh, the use of recycled aircraft aluminum. Uh, and other aluminum elements, which are just sort of readily available because of the industry on the West Coast. And then on the East Coast, we get a lot of iron gamelons, which are made out of sort of the industrial Northeast, like leftover car parts and things from like the Rust Belt. Uh, and they, they essentially tuned them starting off in a similar way. And they created a sort of sound palette similar to a gamelon. And then some, you know, they, they stuck with um, what I would consider sort of more traditional Indonesian compositional techniques, but they sort of quickly branched off into experimental and conceptual um, composition. Even in the heyday of American gamelan in the mid to late 70s, um, you would see, 1970s it is, in the mid to late 1970s, you'll see like, you know, um, things like very graphic notation, conceptual scores, process pieces. And so the, the instruments themselves, um, even though they're a gamelan, they, uh, 
they really get outside the box. Now, the instruments that I specialize in, uh, and this is where the, the, I guess the misnomer or the controversy comes in is because the instruments that I wrote my dissertation on are what people talk about when they say Lou Harrison's American Gamelan or one of them. And it's a set of pipes uh, that he tuned in just intonation in like 1970, 1971. And he wrote three pieces, including a really gorgeous oratorio and like a, a puppet opera. Um, and he didn't really construct them as a gamelan, um, but he called them a gamelan just to kind of be cheeky with his partner. And it kind of stuck. And so now people think of the, you know, in like the Grout Poliska textbook, you'll see like, oh, the picture of Lou Harrison with like the cutoff oxygen tanks and like the scrap metal stuff. And he did all that stuff basically to compose stuff for his Chinese ensemble, which was sort of gigging in the Bay Area. And he never had a second thought about gamelan. And then five years later, then we start to have an actual American gamelan movement with him involved um, with a different set of instruments that actually were trying to copy um, some of the Javanese concepts. So it's sort of like a interesting all over the map, but basically it's tuned metals, that are sometimes inspired by Javanese things and sometimes not. It's a very complicated answer. I, Brady, I had a question. I remember a few years ago being at PASIC and visiting the Rhythm Discovery Center, the little PAS museum, and they had some sort of Lou Harrison American Gamelon thing there. I don't remember if that was a temporary exhibit or permanent. Do you know if that's still there? Yeah, um, it's not up on exhibition now, at least it wasn't when I was at PASIC this last year, but um, was the ones in, do you remember if they were in the red cases, the red boxes? I think I remember like tubes, like pipes. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, the instruments that Lou built with his partner for this stuff in the or very early seventies before his gamelan stuff, um, is it's a set of instruments called Old Grandad. And those would have been the pipes in the red boxes with the oxygen tanks. And PAS essentially found, bought, and refurbished the original set that Lou built. Uh, there are three other sets of those in existence, uh, three copies of the original set, but PAS refurbished the original set and put it out as like a display piece. And then when they actually originally opened the exhibit, you could actually play the pipes. Yeah, I think uh, I remember that. But they, I think they, for the last PASIC, I think they put them back into storage, but that's the original old granddad, which is the instrument that Lou traveled with. Like he took that set with him to Japan to do PMF a couple times. Um, yeah, so that's that's the old granddad set that was his original sort of experiment. Which really quickly side plug, if you're ever in Indianapolis, it's totally worth going to that museum. And I, I know they have like so much stuff they have to like rotate out exhibits. So not at all surprised that it's it's not out but it's it's really cool getting to see all the stuff there i one of my favorite things was they have the uh the handwritten manuscript for musser's etude and c yeah and uh, they also have the all the old like musser experiment instruments like the, yeah like the celestophone yeah. the celestophone yeah <laughs> exactly or emil richards um like the the rock you know the tuned like rock that you can like, um, you guys want to talk about like, it's like a lithophone that you can like slide another rock on, but all the little digits are cut different lengths. So it plays a pitch as you slide the rocks against each other. Well, I did not know about that. Yeah, it's super cool. Cause they have a, some of Emil Richard's stuff and then all the Musser stuff. And then obviously all these old drum sets, it's an incredible collection. I wish they could keep all of it out all the time.
It's so cool. It's definitely worth a side trip at PASIC. I haven't gone in years, maybe since my first PASIC ever. I'm always thinking like, oh, I want to like these, these clinics are only happening here this year and I can go next year, but um, I'll have to probably since my first time, like I have much better context <laughs> to understand what all these things are. So you mentioned um, old granddad number one, and I saw on your website that um, I think you had gone to to visit maybe old granddad number four at MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, where are the other two? Uh, so number two is in, uh, it's in California. It's at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, and they, they use it there every so often. Um, it's, I don't know if it's owned by the university or if it's owned by Willie Winant. Um, but Willie Winant was, uh, do you guys know him at all? Um, no. he, he, man, he's a guy you should know. Like Willie Winant is, uh, he collaborated with kind of everybody famous on the West coast. Uh, he was close friends with Lou Harrison. He was close friends with, um, Zhevsky. Um, he used to tour with Oingo Boingo and, uh, Tanny Elfman so like they have he's got a, a wild resume but he owns I think he owns or at least he's the caretaker for number two uh number three is owned by a guy named um John Pennington yeah um and he is in Montana um it's kind of an interesting story um so Lou and Lou and his partner they um Bill Colvig was his partner and he was a kind of an engineer electrician uh, they built the first set, traveled with it until the first set was almost in disrepair. And then they commissioned a guy in Colorado. I guess he was living in um, somewhere else at that point, um, Taos maybe, um, to build a second set, to refurbish the first set and build a second set. Uh, and then they commissioned, when he had the instruments, the original number one, he made a copy for himself and they kept it in Durango um do you guys know richard cook well if if you guys have ever been to a public park and you see these things where they have like uh like aluminum slabs or they have like pipes and like kids playgrounds and you can just tap them with like a you know that's probably free notes which is a richard cook uh company and uh he's good at that but he also rebuilt all of uh lou's instruments and so he made a second set and then a third set and john pennington has the third set which is actually wild because and getting into the weeds a little bit, but um, the the one of the things that makes Granddad so special is that it has these kind of like baritone and bass plates. Um, so you get down to these super low frequencies and on the old Granddad number four, which the Boston Modern Orchestra Project commissioned, the bass plates are on these resonators, which are essentially like concrete forming tubes that are like you know, 14 inches or whatever in diameter, and they're like six feet tall. So those are the resonating chambers for these slabs. Well, in number three, they wanted to be able to like hike them into the mountains so they could do like sound installations. So number three, um, you actually see pictures of it from when it used to visit other places. There's some pictures when it was in residency at Vanderbilt a bunch of years ago. And there's like these horizontal resonators that look like, you know, a missile launcher. And it's because they took each note on its resonator individually and put it on their shoulder and used to like hike up a mountain with it. Um, so that's number three. It's in Montana. Um, and then number four uh, is owned by uh, Jody Diamond, who was the woman that I went to go visit at MIT. Um, and she was there with Evan Zaporin, uh, who runs their 
Um, he runs their Balinese gamelan and a bunch of other stuff. He's, a, you know, a great composer. Um, and uh, she has it, I think, in storage right now. They're sort of looking for a, a permanent home for it. Um, but that's where number four is right now. Uh, so it's, there's, they're all over the place. You know, Brady, just thinking back on what I saw in those instruments and the fact that this week for uh, Jason Truding's Extremes, I had to get a hacksaw and some metal conduit piping and make three more pipes. Yeah. <laughs> these, these instruments, I mean, I, I wouldn't say they're, they're crude because there, there is, you know, tuning involved and all, but it's also, it seems like not like as difficult as say building a marimba. And I was wondering, have you like made yourself one, like even just like one little thing? I did. It's actually how I got into to doing uh, this stuff. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so when I was in my master's degree, uh, I was doing my master's with uh, Brett Dietz at LSU, and he was super into solo glockenspiel at that point. And so I was doing like a catalog search on like solo glockenspiel, solo bells, whatever. And I came across a catalog listing at UC Santa Cruz for this solo for tenor bells and I was like what's are what are tenor bells I've never like heard this before well it's the essentially the alto instrument for old granddad so he wrote a solo for tenor bells uh, as a tribute to Anthony Cerrone because Tony Cerrone was the head of the percussion department uh, when Lou was on composition faculty at, at Santa Cruz so um I got the manuscript for that and I had to build a set of pipes. I had to like do all the research to figure out what the original instrument was. They wrote an article on kind of like how to do it. Um, and I kind of had to figure it out. So what I did was I bought, um, the original old granddad has a set of aluminum pipes and a set of steel pipes for each pitch range uh, because he liked the timbral combination of both metals. Um, and so I bought EMT, which is a little bit cruder uh, EMT is just the electrical like extruded conduit that you can buy at Lowe's or Home Depot. Um, and you, what I did was I cut it off sort of to length, um, maybe a quarter of an inch too long for the pitch. And then you get a, a strobe tuner and an angle grinder out and you just sort of go at it until you get it to the right frequency range. Um, and then what I, uh, I just, we were using hacksaws to do ours and like I'm lucky to have all 10 fingers. <laughs> I can imagine that's yeah. Crazy, I mean, man. once you get it close, like trying to shave off an eighth of an inch with a hacksaw is not not good. <laughs> yeah, the cost of the instrument should include the ER bill, I think. Yeah. Well, and also to stabilize the pipes, we had to like sit on them, so we're doing it like right next to it, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I was lucky enough to have an instrument repair shop with a like a belt sander and an angle grinder, so I could that would be amazing. Yeah, I know that Richard does this thing. When, when he builds his pipes where to get the, I don't know if you have dealt with this, but when you hit a pipe, um, there are discrepancies in the thickness, like the wall thickness of the metal. And so the pipe can kind of have like a wobble to the pitch a little bit. And it's because it's vibrating, like a mode of vibration is a lateral and a vertical mode of vibration. And so Richard actually goes through and finds the higher mode of vibration. And then he tunes the lower mode of vibration up to the higher one by like kind of, not like notching it, but like just barely kind of like rounding out some of the ends in a certain way to kind of make the pitch stand a little bit more still. So it, it can get a lot more complicated. I would say that most people don't do it because it's not important to that style of composition necessarily. Like I feel like percussionists use a lot of pipes for texture and not necessarily for like 
harmonic resolution. Um, so, but, but with the old granddad stuff, the entire set of instruments is in just intonation, just intonation. And that's the entire justification for the instruments. So if the pitches don't stand still and if the pitch is not super clear, then you should just play it on a marimba, you know? So I was reading in, in your dissertation also, um, you kind of outline here steps like how you could create your own instruments, right? Yeah, there's, I tried to go into like, here are the exact frequencies and here are the exact pipe lengths and thicknesses and tried to go into as much of the like resonating structures as I could just because I feel like the point of the dissertation was not to like just to have some sort of excellent document on a thing that already exists but to give people resources to do it on their own so it's like if you want to like cut a set of pipes to the right length so that you have a set of d major just intonation pitch sets i've done all the math for you uh and then i obviously um well not obviously for the people that are listening to this but my website has uh recordings of all the instruments and all the pitches individually um so the composers can take those pitches and just sequence them if they want to sort of create you know if you're working in a notation program and you want to create your own like patch set or you want to put it on like a midi controller so you can just mess around with an instrument that's in just intonation and kind of mess with it and then what i did was i i took all this information and i brought it to a couple of composer friends um, and had them write me pieces as like a test case so you can there should be enough information to sort of build the instruments and then also enough information to um write for it hopefully yeah brady i know our, our buddy here um frequent podcast guest host uh nosny he builds the threads pipes and and things mm -hmm. like that and I know I've seen Tracy Fur makes pipes and various wood wooden instruments. Is there anybody out there that's making gamelons, um, even as like a side project for themselves and selling them? No. Uh, well, so American gamelon stuff, not the Lou Harrison instruments specifically. Um, there are other people that have made um, other stuff. So one of one of Lou Harrison's close collaborators is a guy named Daniel Schmidt. Um, and Dan Schmidt is like, he's turning 80 really soon. And Dan Schmidt was sort of famous for making basically West Coast American gamelons that you could commission. Um, now he's kind of passing on the knowledge a bit. Um, but but yeah, so there are people that make some, but not, I think, on the scale of, um, you know, someone that anybody in the percussion community that's making pipes, unfortunately. Dan's instruments are really interesting. He makes like wood like wood frames like really nice tongue oil polished wood frames that kind of look like orf instruments and then he has uh usually aluminum and um brass like slabs and then he actually pounds out um these uh they kind of look like nipple gongs but they have no skirt on them so it just is like a a plate with a nipple on it like a raised center and there's they're meant to um emulate the bonong or any of the sort of like smaller um, nipple gongs that you might see uh, in a javanese or a balinese orchestra so he's the only one that i know that's really making them and sort of made a, a small business interest out of it um but yeah i mean i've toyed with the idea but it's definitely like a, a passion project that would take a couple of years to to get right 
Yeah. And kind of a follow-up. I know a lot of people, not a lot of people, but steel drums in America have become more popular and there's more people making them. And the work is obviously, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but the materials themselves are are fairly cheap. And to make, of course, the thread pipes are fairly cheap. But I feel like American Gamelon would be a little bit more of a cost, maybe cost prohibitive endeavor to, to build that kind of instrument. Um, is it? Well, I don't know. I would, I would think that, like, I own a small set of Dan Schmidt instruments. Uh, there are six, what are called Sauron, which are like keyboard instruments, like single octave keyboards, you know. Um, and then I own a Slentum and um, some, instead of having all the big gongs that you'll see, like in a Javanese or a Balinese gamelan, um, I do, I have a set of like bass keys, kind of like the old granddad instruments. So they're like, a big dedicated like resonator that's adjustable and then you can put on like you know a piece of plate aluminum that's like a quarter inch thick and it's like I don't know seven inches wide by about 12 to 15 inches long and it gets you like you know a C below the range of a marimba so um all that aluminum and all the support structure probably wouldn't cost you as much as you know a pair of double seconds for a steel band program, they're probably cheaper than a set of six bases. So you could probably do it. I think the thing that's prohibitive is that Indonesian music is more intimidating and people don't understand the culture around contemporary composition in Indonesia in the way that they sort of intuitively get steel band because it's more similar to what we're familiar with, with pop and jazz. Sure. Um, I think a lot of people aren't aware that like there are contemporary Indonesian composers writing experimental music for gamelan or writing things that are within the compositional lineage of Balinese or Javanese tradition. Um, I think people just don't connect with it in the same way. It just seems like super, super complicated. So it's not like maybe worthwhile right off the bat. I think it's totally worthwhile, but I, I think work on selling that. <laughs> have, having experienced what you're describing, uh, University of Illinois has a wonderful gamelan taught by Pakas Nawa. And I think one of the biggest things is uh, the obstacle of notation because they don't notate using Western notation and the instruments aren't chromatic. So I don't think they're as quote unquote well set up for that. Um, and so that was always a, a huge obstacle for us was the notation. Uh, and there was a guy, Cody Jensen, that that was very good at taking Pox instructions and converting them into some sort of written notation that we could use, whether that was actual music or some sort of, you know, outline. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. The the cipher notation is difficult. But you know what's, what, what's really curious is that there are sort of two populations that love gamelan. There is the sort of composer, performer, um, sort of cohort that just love it and they dig into cipher notation they want to play all the gamelan stuff and then there are complete amateurs who don't know anything about music and in fact they use gamelan as a rehabilitative tool in prisons in england like it's not oh. there are people that are completely unfamiliar with this instrument and if you don't have to rely on the notation they they don't have the barriers to it i think that we do i mean certainly i'm still breaking down those barriers because I've had Western music drilled into me for 30 years, you know? 
It reminds me, I had a, a teacher, Ricardo Flores, that was great at steel pan. And I've, I've never been good at steel pan. And I, I asked, like, how do you, like, the notes, where, like, where they, where they are, it's confusing. And he was like, well, you grew up playing, like, piano and marimba. He's like, I, I couldn't do that stuff when I went to college. So this was, it, none of it made sense. So this was easy for me. <laughs> I think the Indonesians have the same thing with their concept of time. Because everything doesn't flow from beat one. It flows to the gong at the end of the phrase. And so you have to build all the musical notation back from the end of the sentence. So it seems really intimidating at first. Wow, that kind of just blew my mind in that moment, thinking about like time. So it's like four, three, two, one. And then instead of being four and three and two and one, it would be and four and three and two and one. And then it would be uh and e four uh and e three uh and e two uh and e one so everything all the different layers of colotomy the layers of rhythmic subdivision back up from the beat forward and then flow to the end of the phrase wow what one of my other favorite things about gamelan music was the uh like sense of um rubata excuse me rubato or fermatas there's mm -hmm. a lot of like a lot of gamelan music has this like Ching, and it's like in western music like we're always like who do i look for for a cure and like the whole group just breathes and does it like it's nothing uh it was like a great lesson in chamber music i thought i think so too i think like i don't think that we as percussionists actually have a problem looking down our nose at world music but i think maybe some other instrument groups do and I always thought that the best, like, the best kind of training in chamber music was always like, you could do gamelan or you could do like West African stuff. Uh, you can do steel band, especially steel band combo stuff since the instruments kind of speak later than you hit the note. There's always just a lot of chamber music lessons that are found in these types of music. And I just, I always found that they were a great asset to me when I was a student. Uh, yeah, Brady, that reminds me, there's a, a great quote from uh, Debussy on when he first heard Gamelan, and he said, uh, Javanese music obeys laws of counterpoint that make Palestrina seem like child's play, and if one listens to it without being prejudiced by one's European ears, one will find a percussive charm that forces one to admit that our own music is not much more than a bar barbarous kind of noise fit for a traveling circus. <laughs> That's funny. You know, uh... There's a good Lou Harrison quote too, he, or not a quote, but he used to, with all of his students, he never referred to the, the continent of Europe. He just called it Northwest Asia because he thought it was, he's like, why do we have this different music? It's not a different landmass. It's just Northwest Asia. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, Brady, you started a gamelan ensemble at your former position at Houston Baptist University. And I saw that the ensemble performed at PASIC in 2019, which is awesome. Congratulations. Um, I'm wondering what what did it what did it take to make that happen? Like forming an ensemble, like I assume probably instruments had to be purchased, and that's probably a really large um a large hurdle um and and you kind of touched on this a little bit what but i'm wondering too what you think about what skills do percussion and, and music students in general get from playing in a gamelan ensemble that they might not get from you know percussion ensemble or or more traditional western chamber music 
Um, so when I was at HBU, uh, I sort of inherited this set of Dan Schmidt instruments. So we didn't have to purchase anything. That was that was really nice. Uh, and in fact, the piece that we played on Focus Day uh, at PASIC was actually not even for a full set of instruments. We had uh, one set of Bonong, um, and then we had, I think, like eight players, seven or eight players sit around the Bonong. And they played essentially a piece of process music where they just hocketed the entire time. So you like have one player establish time and then you add in and they sort of layer in this like recursive uh, sort of algorithm until you build the piece out. Uh, so that's kind of the instrument and, and the, the piece of music. The, the piece was called Kenong for Bonong by, by Jody Diamond, who was actually one of Harrison's uh, gamelan teachers. Um, when uh, when we did it, the reason I wanted to do gamelan with the students at HBU is like a lot of programs, it was a very small music department. So uh, the band was not more than a couple dozen people at the time. Um, there were two percussion majors um, and I was sort of preparing during COVID to do like a trio with them and sort of have some, you know, some, it, some chamber music experience, but there were not enough brass players to do a brass quintet. There were not enough woodwind players to do like a woodwind quartet. And it was like, we need to be able to give these students chamber music experiences that are sort of outside of what they're capable of doing because we can't do brass quintets, you know? So this was our way of doing some chamber music stuff with all of the majors that wanted to be involved in chamber music because they didn't have any other avenues in that small of a school. Um, and I think it worked out really well. Uh, it worked out really well for them. They, they had a good time, obviously, on the trip. It was one of the only chamber music experiences they would have in a four-year degree at a small school. Um, and I think gamelan, you know, we talk about sort of chamber music skills. I think that's really important. What percussionists specifically can get out of it, depending on the type of gamelan that you actually play, whether you're doing American gamelan things where you can do really conceptual um, or experimental composition or whether you want to, you know, be at a place where you're doing sort of more traditional Javanese gamelan or more traditional Balinese gamelan. Balinese gamelan tends to be really kind of athletic. So you, um, you, there is, um, there are some sort of slower, more meditative aspects to it, but um, the, the whole idea of this like crazy hocketing that happens in gamelan is all in Balinese stuff. So for you like marching bass drummers drum one and drum two freaks out there like Balinese gamelan is where you want to be and then with the uh, Javanese gamelan it's so it can be slower and more meditative but it's also quasi improvisatory so the reason that Debussy had that quote about counterpoint is because there's essentially a core melody called a balungan in in Javanese music um, and no one plays the balungan in a sort of more professional group. Everyone plays around the balungan. And they kind of play rules and guidelines that, you know, like if it go, if the melody goes like, I'm using numbers because that's what the, you know, the Javanese would use. Or if you're in cipher notation, it goes like three, five, six, one. You might have a player that goes like, three, five, three, five, five, six, five, six, six, one, six, one, one, six, one, six, or whatever, right? They're sort of playing in this counterpoint that dances around the Belungan melody. And then you have 20 people all following a different set of rules. And so the Belungan is felt, but it's never played by one person. 
Uh, and so you sort of have to develop your own sense of independence and counterpoint, uh, and you are free to improvise within these guidelines, which are not dissimilar to improvising in jazz or having sort of an improvisatory percussion ensemble piece where you need to have some aleatoric moments. Um, you're just sort of following more structured harmonic rules. Yeah, that's that's so cool and so thoughtful. It sounds like it wasn't a very tough sell at HBU. Oh no, not I think, yeah, I think the the students really enjoyed it. We had a great time at Pace. Like I think the the administrators really enjoyed being able to offer both the educational experience for the students and also the high profile experience for both the students and the department. I think it was a win, 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 win. Sounds like it. Sounds awesome. You know, at, at University of Maryland, when I was a student there, there was a full gamelan ensemble, but it was mostly like non, I don't even remember music majors being a part of it. They just rehearsed in our band rehearsal room and had all the instruments stored. Um, yeah. And I, it's a, like at the time it was kind of like, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm busy doing excerpts and marimba solos and all the normal stuff. And now it's like, wow, like that is not a normal thing at a lot of schools. The gamelan, there was a Kodo ensemble there too. Like, it's just cool. If you have the opportunity, um, those who yeah. might be listening, soak it up. Well, Ben and I were so fortunate to go to North Texas and we had so many different experiences. So like, we could do all the marimba stuff and all the excerpts and drum set and whatever. But then if you didn't go through that experience and do like the gamelan with Ed Smith, or you didn't do the West African stuff, or you didn't study with Jose Aponte or whatever, it's just like, you're missing out. And I'm really thankful that I did. Like, I think there are so many, you know, they're hard skills, but they're also soft skills that you learn when you're dealing with a you know, like in Ed Smith's ensemble, he would kind of give out cipher notation. You have to rote learn some things. And it's just like, there are a lot of soft skills and learning to prepare for that type of ensemble that like, you know, have very little to do with like how good your chamber music playing is. So. Or like learning how to rehearse once a week instead of three times yeah. a week and like remember stuff Monday to Monday. But yeah, Ed, Ed Smith is just one of the most kind, wonderful, amazing, people and musicians I've, I've ever, ever met. So thank you, Ed, for everything. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ed, if you're listening, you're the man. Nice, well, I, I wanna talk a little bit about your dissertation too, before we get on to your book. Um, but Brady, your, your dissertation is a composer's guide to writing for Old Granddad, which is Lou Harrison's set of gamelan instruments. Um, so I'm wondering, what are, what are some of the, the biggest takeaways that you think a composer should have in mind when they're writing for this instrument or the set of instruments? Uh, I think the, the history of it and how it relates to just intonation is really important for composers that want to dip their toes in the, the J.I. pool. Um, percussionists, we don't tend to think about this that much uh, because we don't have to. Our instruments come in tune already unless they're timpani. Um, and I guess the greatest timpanists, they do think about just intonation. I, Dave Herbert gives a, a class all about this, uh, you know, um, but with just intonation, we're sort of forced to think about the ramifications tonally of, uh, of what you're, what you're doing. So, so for instance, a piece that's not in the, dis the dissertation, but is that, that, uh, solo to Anthony Cerrone that I was talking about earlier, it's, a set of tenor bells is in just intonation D major. And then everything is tuned via super particular ratios. So 
obviously we all know i mean am i good to give like a little ji primer here yeah go? okay so like octaves are tuned the frequencies are tuned exactly two to one so like a440 an octave above it is a880 um originally it was that every set of notes was tuned in a ratio also so a fifth is a ratio of three to two so an e above an a440 is e660 and then the d is also a ratio so it's four to three and then we have thirds in different ratios and that's just intonation where everything is related via ratios but that means that instruments can only be in one key so before um, this is why Bach wrote well-tempered clavier tempers describing the tuning obviously right happy birthday Bach um, so yes. <laughs> there, there were there were all kinds of experiments throughout sort of the late middle ages they're taking sort of this like you know, they sort of inherited Boethius and tried to start like departing from the Greeks to make things easier to use. And so we get into various temperaments to allow people to switch keys and some more successfully than others uh, until we get to equal temperament where the octaves are basically equal. And then you just divide all the half steps into 12 equal parts. And so that means that things like major and minor thirds are significantly different in just intonation than they are in equal temperament. If you ever have an opportunity to play a major chord on a just intonation instrument versus a major chord on an equal temperament instrument, you can actually hear beats in the chord when you play an equal temperament instrument. And then the, the notes just stand still when you play on a just intonation instrument. So it's uh, more pure, I guess. Um, you get too far down the rabbit hole and it can kind of be an adjustment for your ears. Like if you listen to a lot of Harry Parch or Ben Johnson or something. So this piece, that, to get back to this piece with um, the solo to Anthony Cerrone, you have to build the instrument. It has to be every, all the ratios relate to D. And then during the middle of the piece, he essentially uh, modulates to A, the, the dominant of the key of the piece. That is really wild. That, it's really wild to go to a dominant of a tonic when you're in just intonation. It creates a lot of conflict harmonically because the pillar tones for the dominant key area are way like outside of what you would sort of expect in equal temperament. And so all this conflict essentially is the entire justification for the piece. And in fact, at the bottom of it, Harrison even says, like it, this piece has to be in just intonation, otherwise the narrow escape back to D major and thus the entire point of the piece are lost. So that's kind of what I think about the, the, the old granddad instruments is it's the way that Lou Harrison started dipping his toe into the just intonation pool. And it's the, the way that he sort of made music um, with a lot of intellectual rigor but not a lot of materials. I think in the same way that like, he, he, he and Parch were friends, you know, Parch would have like a, a 47 note octave or whatever. Um, Harrison always wanted much simpler intervals, but he always wanted the same sort of intellectual rigor where the piece was completely designed around the intonation structure. And so I think if you wanna sort of dip into that world, you, you can look at the complexity of Harry Parch and then the simplicity of Lou Harrison and they kind of have the same vibe. It's all so interesting. I know it's, it's cool. And then you have to take a break and go for a walk. <laughs> it's, it's a whole, a whole, like you said, it's a whole rabbit hole to go down and, and just think about, you know, all the implications and 
my mind is still stuck on um, feeling time from the end of the bar. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that all week. Um, so your, your research also included, well, I guess your whole, whole dissertation project included the commissioning of a new work for Old Grandad. It's called Laurel by Shane Mons. Um, tell us a little bit about the work. Has it been premiered yet? It hasn't. Uh, the, the thing was written bef like before COVID. Um, maybe only a year before COVID, and it needs to, it, it needs to, there needs to be a commissioning project. Um, renting a set of old granddad instruments and putting them in a hall would take, uh, well, just the set of instruments is like a $5,000 rental fee. So we have to sort of get into um, like commissioning the project to happen. But Shane's work, I thought it was sort of phenomenal. He sort of took um, essentially tonal instruments. Um, and he designed the piece around the old granddad instruments where the materials played on instruments that are not part of old granddad shift the tonality of old granddad. So you can take like five note subsets of the old granddad set or like three note subsets and reorient them to things that exist within equal temperament. And that makes old granddad suddenly be in the key of B minor or suddenly be in the key of like A major. Uh, and it works with the just intonation scheme. He did all the like interval math. So Laurel is a, he's, he's a big like um, North Indian buff. So he wanted to go through this Indian compositional technique called a Laurel. And essentially it was his way of cycling the old granddad instrument through all 12 keys in the same way that a sitar player might transition through a laurel of, of ragas in one evening. So it's about an hour long, hour 15 minute long um, piece of music that essentially forces this instrument, which is, cannot be moved from D major uh, and forces it to be in all 12 keys. It's super interesting. Well, I, I hope we all get to hear it someday. <laughs> yeah, I know. COVID kind of threw a wrench in everything, but definitely applying for grants to get it done. So hopefully sometime in the near future. Yeah, it sounds super cool. I, yeah, I was looking at the, the composition date and I was thinking like, hmm, and then I, I was like, oh, is there a recording somewhere? And I didn't find anything. And I was like, oh, that's probably why this is pretty complicated. And, and even, I mean, yeah, shipping the instruments and yeah, well, so it is. Um, the last set of instruments was commissioned by M Boston Modern Orchestra Project because they couldn't, they didn't want to pay for the rental and the transportation of a set of instruments from California. And so they, they built a set of instruments to make a recording of uh, two of the three pieces that Lou wrote for Old Granddad. So he, he originally wrote a, pup a puppet opera called Young Caesar. Uh, and then he wrote an oratorio called La Cora Sutro. And then uh, he wrote a suite for a violin in American Gamelan. And people usually record the later two. A lot of choir directors, La Cora Sutro is kind of like a bucket list item for, for a lot of choir directors. And they're gorgeous. This is kind of why I love the set of instruments because it's like so unique and so amazing. Um, that like La Cora Sutro is a chorus plus the American gamelan instruments, plus like tam-tam and concert bass drum, plus uh, an organ. Um, it's, it's really like wild. People play it with um, all different kinds of organs. It's, it's crazy. Well, Brady, before we move on um, and do talk about your book, would you tell us a little bit about the 
about Lou Harrison's different types of gamelan? Yeah, uh, so I think a lot of people, uh, when they think of Lou Harrison, um, they sort of, at least for percussionists, we tend to think of his like 1930s and 40s classic percussion ensemble era stuff. And they kind of think of him as a gamelan composer or someone who sort of nebulously incorporates world music into his compositions. Um, but he really wasn't an informed gamelan composer until the mid to late 70s. Uh, and in fact, all these old granddad instruments were built before he really even knew anything about gamelan. He sort of had gamelan records and sort of knew what it sounded like, but knew nothing about it. So um, he had moved back to the Bay Area and um, was just sort of composing large ensemble works and doing chamber music and things. Um, his, uh, he really liked playing with his Chinese ensemble. So he and his partner and, and some other, uh, I guess, instrumentalists and vocalists in the Bay Area, they sort of constituted a revolving roster um, of, and they would play like Chinese and Korean music uh, or, Lou's compositions loosely based around some of those ideas and he they were playing at a I guess old spaghetti factory some venue in San Francisco and uh they were trying to use jalteron which are like have you guys ever played varied trio you know the the rice bowls the Lou Harrison varied trio uh there's oh. this this Indian instrument called a jalteron which is essentially like ceramic rice bowls and he wanted them to be in just intonation. And so the way you put rice bowls into just intonation is by putting a little bit of water in it until it changes the pitch of the bowl. Well, he was like, he tells the story, he would go put the bowls, put them in tune, and then they would go eat and then come back to play the gig. And the bowls would just like sort of thunk and they had no resonance because the ceramic was soaking up the water. And so it was making the bowl go dead. And he was like, I can't. they started putting glycerin in the water and like coating the bowls and stuff. And he's like, there's got to be a better way. So they started using metal to sort of emulate this Korean instrument called a bangyang. And um, it's kind of like, it ended up kind of being like a vibraphone. So they wanted just intonation instruments to play Chinese and Korean music. And they ended up calling it a gamon because they didn't know any better which is <laughs> kind of a funny roundabout way to get to things. Uh, so he composed three pieces for it. And then they start doing this um, world music seminar at Berkeley in 1974, 1975. And um, they had in Pak Chokro, who was sort of a world-renowned gamelan composer at that point, um, sort of like Javanese gamelan royalty. And... Uh, Lou immediately stopped like the other stuff that he was doing. And he was just like, just teach me everything about Javanese gamelan. That's when he started learning about Javanese gamelan. And so then he and Bill built a full set of Javanese instruments uh, called C-Betty is the name of the, the instruments that he built. And they ended up building a couple that are basically Americanized versions of full Javanese court gamelan. And uh, that's kind of where he started doing all of his gamelan stuff so the double concerto for violin and cello with gamelan is for c betty and the um was it the in memoriam carlos chavez all this sort of like gamelan de gung stuff with western instruments is all for c betty um yeah and that's how he kind of got into it and that's how he met dan schmidt and all of dan's instruments are now based on lou's old instruments from that period so 
it's kind of a cool evolution and they sort of just fell into fell into javanese music by way of berkeley i guess it's so interesting what a what a visionary i think about like the the same with the harry parch instruments like you know, just to have this idea of, I want this instrument to exist. I'm going to find out how to build it, make it, and then write for it. And it, it's maybe not the most practical thing in the world. Like you said, it's really costly and difficult to, um, to you know, to play on the old granddad instruments, for example. But, um, you know, I guess you have to hand it to that, like they knew this is what it's got to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um lose lose thing like you have to um he just always wanted to play with all of his toys there's this analogy that he uses and he's like i just have my yard and i put out all of my toys so like he was a, a master of uh piri flutes and he was uh you know he was invested in chinese opera and he knew about um like medieval stuff like a lot of his multi-movement works involve like richer cares and like um you know, they use like ISO rhythms and stuff. And so he was just like, I just want to have the things that I like and I'm just going to keep playing with them no matter the cost because it's what's fun for me. It's a little bit of a hedonist, I think. <laughs> well, thanks so much for all of this super great information and for breaking it down to a point where hopefully our listeners who um, maybe don't know much at all or anything about this can have something to grab onto, but it's still super compelling, interesting information. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. If if I can plug any of Lou's stuff, I would say go check out the the any of the recordings of Lacoro Sutro uh, or the uh, Suite for Violin and American Gamelan. I think you'll sort of get the appeal right away. Yeah, cool. We'll put your website in the show notes too, so people can listen to those sound clips that you have and and just read more about it. And if you really love reading about it, um, they can read your dissertation too. Oh yeah, it's posted right on the website. It is this right if you're looking, <laughs> and if they really like the dissertation, they can come study with you at UT Martin. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. If they're looking for some light bedtime reading, they can check out the dissertation. It's only 246 pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brady, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. Um, as we've mentioned, you have this new book coming up. Would you tell us a little bit what what's it called? What's it about? How can people check it out? Yeah, I'll have a, a book being released shortly called Brain Drain, uh, which actually Caleb was kind enough to contribute to. Um, the book is essentially kind of an intermediate, beginning to intermediate mallet method. And the, the justification for it came around because I, as I was teaching before I got this, uh, this job in Tennessee, um, I was teaching, you know, a lot of high school students, a lot of middle school students doing some private lessons during my doctorate. And I noticed like a lot of them, they have these packets of warmups that they have to learn, right? Like, especially these people who do like really like Texas drumline, indoor drumline, they just like have to memorize tons and tons of exercises. And, and when I was actually working in the activity, we just wanted to keep it simple. And I started noticing all of these tertiary benefits um, so the book is basically a way for you to mentally manipulate the materials that you're already aware of through music theory and use those to become a better mallet player. So instead of doing the entire George Hamilton Green, you know, 50 studies book, just do lesson one in all 48 major and minor keys. 
um, which I think a lot of us have already done. Uh, we have done it sort of as a dexterity exercise, or we've sort of done it as a way to keep warm-ups fresh or make sure we understand keys. But if you do it in a methodical way and you build an approach to reading around music theory, um, I think it actually helps solve kind of a lot of problems. So the analogy that I like in the book is, um, that I give in the introduction, is when you learn a language, you learn sort of the alphabet, the letters of the alphabet, and then you start stringing together rudimentary words like cat and dog and hat and things like that. And then eventually you get more complicated words and then you can build sentences and paragraphs and pages. Well, we sort of learn to read notes on the page and then we immediately jump into like an etude without like learning like, hey, this etude is not that hard. This is like an F major run up followed by like a G seven, like a G dominant chord, like arpeggio coming back down. And then it steps up in this third thing that you kind of already know how to play. And so it's essentially focused around like using music theory to read patterns and, and sort of train mallet players to sort of mentally manipulate materials and then learn to read those manipulations on the page as opposed to just providing 40 pages of notes to learn, which does teach students to read better, but it's sort of through brute force instead of a methodical approach to, to learning, I think. Yeah, I think that's really smart. I remember um, when I was younger and hadn't studied music theory as much, sometimes when I was learning notes, it just felt like every next note was a random note and I'm gonna learn it, I'm gonna memorize it, I can read that. But then as I learned more and more about music theory, it, like, of course you recognize patterns, but we don't usually get that in depth at a younger age. We think like, yeah. oh, college students are ready for this, or maybe high schoolers who are in AP music theory when they're already playing things well beyond, you know, what, like, in, in as far as theory goes, well beyond what they know about. Yeah, I, I think even less advanced players are capable of more than we might think that they're capable of, of being aware of. I, I, I remember when I was helping out with this sixth grade beginner percussion class. Um, you know, if you're in Texas, you're fortunate enough to have like a beginner, like dedicated instrument class. And the director needed some help and he was like, well, I'm trying to like, can I just have you out for like a week to like help start them on keyboards? And I came out and it's like the first lesson is just basically, you know, stone stick control page five on C and F. And then you sort of learn some like tetrachordal melodies, uh, you're sort of going at it. And I was like, this, let's just try something. So we learned sort of the half step diagram on the page, uh, on the keyboard, excuse me. And then we just basically did like eight on a hand, just up the chromatic scale, and then four on a hand, then two on a hand, then one on a hand, just sort of up and down the chromatic scale. So they learned to feel what half steps are like. And then I was like, okay, two half steps is a whole step. So let's play all of our whole tone scales. And we constructed both whole tone scales. And then we we're like, okay, let's everybody play octatonic scales. And so we did all three octatonic collections. And so I had like, 12 year olds playing all three octatonic collections within a week and then they went to learn their major scales and i think they learned their major scales in like three weeks like it was it was amazing if you don't you know short change them and give them the concept you know yeah it's so it's so interesting um that i think you're right we underestimate what they're capable of um i've been known to like i pull out the circle of fifths with fifth graders or sixth graders and you know that wasn't something I saw until high school music theory but mm -hmm. otherwise if you're learning your scales it feels like random notes yeah it does and and I think 
that ends up being a barrier for promising students because they feel like the speed at which they can sort of visually acquire the notes is their talent level. And it's not really right. <laughs> like they're very talented musicians who just, they don't connect A to B to C very quick, but they can definitely play F major already if you let them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and with all these exercises, they're, they're getting a sense of the keyboard. Um, you know, I mean, I can't imagine these, these beginners that you have playing octatonic scales and, and all of this. Um, and that, of course, helps their reading and helps everything else. They're just comfortable because they've done these things away from reading. Yeah, it's like, it's like a, a three-step process, right? You have to like recognize the note on the page. Then you have to recognize where that note is on the keyboard. Then you have to hit that note. So a lot of times they can work on steps two and three without ever having to look at the page by like saying the note name and like all these exercises, if you make them mentally challenging, but not eyes connected to the page, they end up building a, a really detailed kinesthetic memory of the instrument that helps free up RAM, I guess, if you will, it helps free up sort of mental space uh, to actually read and work on step number one. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Brady, uh, I wrote just a, a short solo for this book for the end of it, along with some others. Um, and we, we were just talking about it. So I pulled up the, it's, this must be like Gen 1 or 2 PDF version oh, yeah. of it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I see some edit notes every now and then. And it's, it's funny. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really great book. Um, I, I'm not sure when it's coming out. But it's, um, it's, it's pretty fantastic. I feel like if I had to classify it, I feel like it's kind of like the Peter's Fundamental Methods book or any of those texts with all the stuff you, you kind of don't need in the beginning. Like you kind of skip over, okay, here's where C is on the keyboard. Like that's there, but it, it doesn't go, you know, as the book says, it starts for like the intermediate percussionist, not... Yeah, you cut out all the, I mean, the first chapter is like scales and pattern recognition and whatnot. And I think it's really great. I mean, even like weaker college students, I feel like could really benefit from, you know, reading the patterns and reading pattern recognition versus, you know, just freaking out when they have to sight read and whatnot. Um, it's great. I really like it. No, I appreciate your, I appreciate your kind words and I appreciate you writing a, writing a piece for the back of it. Yeah, the, the back of the book, um Caleb is one of a few composers we also have Brian Nosny wrote another etude for the back um and Joe Moore wrote a, one uh, one of my composer friends Ben Morris from Rice also wrote one and they sort of take advantage of the skills that you you get in it yeah I think when I was writing it I was kind of like you know when you do the Peter's fundamental book or you do like the what is it the Macmillan technique book or they, they or even the Goldenberg book or whatever they have like you know, here are some exercises in this key, like here's scalar studies, and then here's like eight, like 12 measure etudes in scalar, whatever. But it doesn't talk about like the, the connective tissue among all those things. You're just sort of expected to go through three pages of the Goldenberg book. And then like, you're like, oh, this etude is connected to that exercise. It was never sort of explicitly spelled out. And so you're sort of expected to make that leap yourself and I think this book was an attempt to sort of like make that connection and strengthen that connection that's so great so uh the important thing is how can people check it out once it's released yeah 
Uh, it should be out in the next week or two, actually. By the time this gets um, released, I'll have a, a landing page on the website. Um, and actually, when you guys release this, I can uh, sort of give you a, a URL that you can put in the show notes. Um, you can go to bradyspitz.com and go to the store. Um, I'm going to try and create a uh, maybe a coupon code for your listeners so they can come come check it out with a little bit of a discount if they'd like. Uh, I should at least have the purchase link up by the time this episode is released, if not the entire uh, item available for sale. So awesome. Nice. Well, thank you. No, thanks for letting me talk about it. You know, I am passionate about my gamelan projects and all that stuff, but I, I also really enjoy teaching. And this type of material is the stuff that I've had the most success with getting the students to like just have that light bulb go off. And I think that's why I really love talking about that stuff as well. Well, it's so important. You know, there's there's lots of there's lots of good resources, but I think um, as far as pedagogy in a lot of areas, like we need more resources that um, maybe approach the topic in a little bit different way. So, yeah, happy. what's the what's the Silicon Valley thing? We're gonna uh, what is this? What did they say about reinventing stuff? Just creative destruction, and uh, I can't remember the phrase, but there's uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm Silicon Valleying the whole percussion move fast and break things (laughs) yeah yeah right this is uh mark zuckerberg's finest quote it's our practice (laughs) (laughs) yeah that doesn't really work for us does it (laughs) the timing on that caleb was perfect Well, I have one quick little thing to say before we wrap. I just wanted to give Brady a shout out because like Brady said, we both did our undergrads at UNT and Brady was, I think, two years older than me. Uh, but Brady was the second person I met at UNT. We, we went to New York Subhub with Nate Sankery. And uh, like, it was like, it's always just so cool to like see people that you went to school with do well. And Brady was always just it, like, has been such a nice guy throughout the years. And it, it's just so good to get to see your face again, Brady. Oh, thanks so much, Ben. Yeah, it's been quite a while since New York Subhub. I would love to go back. I'm going to be going there in basically a week from today. So excited. Oh, that, that's right. Yeah, right after this is released, I think we'll both be back in Denton for the, the same. Oh, nice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're, uh, it'll be too late for our listeners, but obviously. But um, no, it won't actually. Um, Christopher Dean's memorial concert is Saturday. Is it April, April 2nd. 2nd? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it'll be webcast. So if you are listening to this and want to check that out, uh, I would encourage you to find the webcast link on the UNT website. Hey, yeah, Ben, you're playing you're playing Vespertine formations. Yeah, right? so I'm playing Vespertine formations with uh, Sandy Rinnick, Brian Zader, and Jason Baker. Um, and there's all sorts of uh, Christopher Dean related people playing. Uh, Josh Smith is performing um, Morning Dove Sonnet. Ejin Fang is performing. I think Bones of Trang Zoo. On Tempany, Mark Ford is performing Etude for a Quiet Hall. There's there's a few others, so definitely check that out. Yeah, it's gonna be really nice. That's so nice. Well, and enjoy, um, Brady. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing so much of your knowledge and research with us. It's great to catch up with you again, and we'll see you all on episode three twenty three. Right, thanks so much for having me, everybody. Thank yeah. you.